remain standing, if you would, please, in honor and respect of God's Word as we open to the book of Hebrews, chapter number 8. Hebrews, chapter number 8. And we've been making our way through the book of Hebrews, and here we are just a little past the halfway point. And uh, we started this back in the beginning of the year, and uh, looks like we're going to maybe be rounding third and heading home around Christmas. So I'm looking forward to all that this book has to offer. Over over the past chapter uh, and more, we've been looking at this idea of Christ, our perfect priest. And so the question does come into play as to why does Christ's priesthood even matter? And so we want to look at this this morning, and we're going to start in verse number 1, chapter 8. Look with me if you would. Now of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. We have such an high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, and not man. For every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices, wherefore it is of necessity that this man have somewhat also to offer. For if he were on earth, he should not be a priest, seeing that there are priests that offer gifts according to the law who serve unto the example and shadow of heavenly things as Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle. For see, saith he, that thou make all things according to the pattern showed to thee in the mount. But now hath he obtained a more excellent ministry, by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant which was established upon better promises. Father, I find myself this morning weak, and I lack. And Father, I find that in me, that is my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. But Father, you are glorious, and you deserve to be magnified no matter what? No matter who is occupying this sacred desk, you, Father, should be the focal point. And so, Father, what I ask this morning as I do time and time again is that you would remove anything of me that might be said today. Take my personal stances, my personal desires, my personal feelings, move them to the side, hide me behind the truth found in your word and your word alone. That as we leave this place, we would be different, not because of listening to some man, but because of hearing from God. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Thank you. you may be seated. So as we've spent the majority of, <clears throat> of this year in Hebrews, we find ourselves sort of at the apex of the preacher's sermon. Now, remember, as we read through the book of Hebrews, that we are essentially reading a sermon. If you were to uh, take 
uh, into, uh, into consideration sermons that are often manuscript. There's various different ways that preachers come uh, to, the, uh, to the way that they prepare their sermons. Uh, some, they will just jot down a simple outline and then fill in the blanks as they go. Others, uh, maybe they, they put in just a little bit more uh, meat in between the lines. Others, they fully manuscript and then read from, uh, uh, from what they have written there, and they just present what they have written in its entirety as a, written, as a read um, uh, form. If you think back to uh, uh, Sinners in the Hand of an Angry God, this was uh, an example of that. Uh, the sermon itself was read. It was not necessarily preached. I'm a little too hyperactive to stand at times and just simply read. Uh, I, I, I tend to preach. Uh, and not saying that one is better than the other. Everybody is different. But if you were to take a sermon that you've heard and completely transcribe it and put it in written form, this is basically what you find in the book of Hebrews. Don't forget that as we read these books, that everything from the beginning to the end, they do connect with one another. It's, it's of utmost importance that we remember that the way these were written were not chapter-verse-division uh, writings. Uh, the writer of Hebrews did not sit down and write chapter 1, verse 1. Now chapter 1, verse 2. It wasn't until the 13th century uh, when the chapter divisions were introduced, and then it wasn't again until the 16th century that the verse divisions were also introduced. And so when we read the Bible that we have today, it is segmented. It was done that way for our ease and for our benefit to be able to read and go find things a little bit faster. But when it was truly written, when it was first penned, these things flowed together as one consecutive thought. Understanding that this is a sermon, basically, that we're reading, what the preacher is putting before us in the verses that we have right now is sort of the apex of the message. Uh, it, it's, it's sort of equivalent what he's getting ready to state to us. If you've ever heard a preacher make the statement something to this effect, if you have fallen asleep on everything else that I have said, hear this part. Or if you forget everything else, remember this. And what we find here in verse number one, notice what he says in verse number one of chapter eight. He says, now of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. Now, he's not trying to summarize. This is, he's not going to give you the cliff notes. What he's saying is, here's the main point. Here's what I want you to realize, why I am teaching this to you, why I am preaching, why I am writing this. Here's what I want you to really understand. And so he lays out the main point. Back in chapter number 5, verse 11, through the fulfillment of the chapter there, Notice what he says. He says, of whom we have many things to say. Of whom, what is he talking about? He takes you back to the idea of Melchizedek, verse number 10, uh, called of God and high priest after the order of Melchizedek. What the writer of Hebrews is trying to do is he is preaching a message, and his base text is really Psalm 110. And so, for example, today I am bringing a message to you from Hebrews chapter number 8, the first six verses. This preacher was essentially bringing a message, and his starting his sort of springboard text would have been Psalm chapter 110. And so he's laying out this idea of being of God out of the order of Melchizedek, a priest, 
And he then starts to expound upon this idea. So we are warned, however, notice what it says there in verse number 12. Uh, For when the time ye ought to be teachers, ye have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become uh, uh, such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. For every one that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But strong meat belongeth to them that are of full age, even those who by reason of use of their senses have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. If you remember when we were back here in chapter number five, I kind of let it be known that we were getting ready to look at some milk, but here very soon the writer of Hebrews is going to start to And we looked at the whole idea of of, uh, immaturity and being brought along into maturity. And uh, by this stage of the game, here we are entering into chapter 8, and maybe I'm the only one that thinks this way, but you get to a place, it's like, okay, where's the meat? You feel like the little old lady, where's the beef, right? You want to know where the meat is. Okay, milk, 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 milk. You keep restating, you keep reiterating the same things. He's getting ready to introduce some meat. We've been feasting on some milk. We've even moved up from milk to some soft foods. We got ourselves into some more hard foods. Now we've graduated from the baby food to hot dogs because that's the, that's the right way to move. You take a child, you get, take them from milk, you give them those smushed up peas and carrots and everything, and then you give them a hot dog. And they have arrived. God's food, right? But the writer of Hebrews has just seared a steak. And he's wanting us to understand something of utmost importance. And so buckle up, get yourselves ready, keep your shoes on this week, because we're going to be in some meat here in just a moment. And from this point forward, we're going to start to really dig even deeper. And let me just kind of put it out this way, that the writer of Hebrews, by the time he's finished with this chapter, my hope by the time we're finished, or not this chapter, but this book, by the time we're finished with this study, I want everyone to walk away with complete assurance that Jesus Christ is sufficient. I need nothing else. I need not add anything to his blood and his righteousness. It was all enough. As we talked about before, the key word in the book of Hebrews is that word perfect. He's perfect. So by the time we make it to the end of this, the preacher wants it to be abundantly clear that Jesus Christ is sufficient. Let's look at a few things in this. First, we want to look at verse number one of chapter eight, where we can see the completion of Christ's work. Now, the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. Here's the main point. We have such a high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Can we take just a minute and notice an an interesting word that is used? It's a word that we very quickly might read over. But it's a three-letter word, who is set. This who is set 
can be literally translated sitting, seated. He's there. So this idea of, the, of Christ seated, being set at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, we need to remember something today, my friends. Jesus Christ is not still on the cross. He is not going to go back to the cross. He is not in the grave at this very moment, seated beside the right hand of God himself is his son who was made into the likeness of man and was put on the cross for you, dead, buried, rose again today, seated in heaven. This is a beautiful idea. But it's not one that we want to ignore and just glance by. Notice something about about the way the writer of Hebrews kind of sums everything up. In these six verses, you're going to notice four perfections. Number one, he is the perfect priest. Number two, he is the perfect sacrifice. Number three, he is the he occupies uh, ministry in the perfect tabernacle, and he is also a perfect minister. And this is what he's trying to sum up with all of this because we find ourselves here, number one, a perfect priest, perfect sacrifice, the completion of his work. Never in the, in the tabernacle was there a seat for the priest to occupy. When you were to walk into the tabernacle, they were always constantly ministering, constantly standing, constantly going back and forth. They never had a place. And it would have been, it would have been complete faux pas for a priest to go back into the Holy of Holies, where there was the Ark of the Covenant. They had just made sacrifice. They were taking the blood of the sacrifice back to the mercy seat to sprinkle on it. They didn't go, well, glad that's done, and go sit down in the Holy of Holies. No, my friend, they came back out and did it again. But our priest sat down. Don't miss that. Christ's being seated speaks uh, to several different things, but we're going to notice two specifically. Number one, it speaks to his authority and his divinity. Upon the Levitical uh, uh, priest entering the Holy of Holies, they stood before the mercy seat, which was to them, it was, a, it was the throne of God himself. They stood there. They entered into that Holy of Holies, stood before the throne only. Could you picture one of the Levitical priests, let's just take Aaron, as he's entering into the Holy of Holies to sprinkle to sit down next to it? No, my friend, he was not worthy to do that. He would only stand before, sprinkle, and then make his way back out again. When Christ entered the Holy of Holies, the true Holy of Holies, not the one that was made by man's hand, but the one of God, he sat down. This speaks to his authority to be able to do that. It speaks to his being divine. Only what was divine could have done so. But not only that, but it speaks to his completion and the fulfillment of what was required. (laughs) 
We talked about this earlier in the book as we made our way to where he rested. And it wasn't a rest. He didn't sit down. He didn't go, oh, Lord, have mercy. I'm tired. My aching bones. Oh, you don't have any idea what being on that cross did to my body. I need to sit down and rest. No. Matt and I were riding our bikes the other day. And uh, I told him, I said, this bike is about the same age as I am. And it was squeaking. Said it's showing wear and tear just like I am. <laughs> That's not what Jesus did. He didn't need the rest. He sat down because the work was done. I don't need to get back up. I don't need to go back out and do it again. I don't have to do anything. I don't have to worry about that. Jesus purged our sins completely. Go back to Hebrews chapter number one. Notice what it says here in chapter number 1, verse 3. This is just the very introduction, talking about Jesus, talking about the way that God introduced himself through his son. Verse number 3, it says, Who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power when he had by himself purged, past tense, finished, done, purged our sins, he sat down at the right hand. This is something that only the one who finally completed it could have done. And we talked about it then, that his sitting was not of rest of fatigue. Go to ver- uh, chapter number 4. Chapter number 4, verses uh, 3 through 5. For which we have uh, believed do enter into rest, talking about the rest that we can enter. And then he gives us an example. As I have sworn in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he spake in a certain place of the seventh day on this wise, God did rest from the, se- on, uh, the seventh day from all his works. This is not saying that he needed to rest because he was tired. It was done. Finished. You want to know, again, why people are not able to rest? People who call themselves born-again believers, people who, who claim Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, but they can't find rest for their soul, it's because they don't believe it's all been done. They believe that there's something that they need to do. They've got to add to it. They believe that there's something that they must do in order to keep the salvation. Jesus did only this much. I've got to work. I've got to struggle. I've got to... No, 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 no. Rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Rest in his completed work. Note something else with this. Look with me, if you would, at 1 John chapter number 2. Notice verse 18, if you would, please. 1 John chapter 2, verse 18 says, Little children, it's the last time, and as ye have heard that Antichrist shall come, even now are there many Antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time. They went out from us, but they were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us, But they went out that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. 
But ye have an unction from the Holy One, and ye know all things. I have not written unto you because ye know not the truth, but because ye know it, and that no lie is of the truth. Who is a liar? But he that denieth that Jesus is the Christ. He is antichrist that denieth the Father and the Son. Whosoever denieth the Son, the same hath not the Father, but he that acknowledgeth the Son hath the Father also. This deny, this idea of denying, sometimes we just, uh, we only address denial as in saying that he doesn't exist. But the word for denial is arneomai. It's an interesting word. It doesn't just mean deny, contradict. It's an interesting concept. I wanted to bring us here because I want to make it abundantly clear that anyone, anything that attempts to belittle the sacrifice that Jesus made is a complete denial and a contradiction to what he has done and therefore blasphemous teaching on a good day. To say that Christ must be offered daily is an affront to his perfect sacrifice. To say that we, if the priest does not offer that mass daily, is to say that his death, his sacrifice was insufficient. And it puts him on the cross day after day after day after day after day. Why? It's not a necessity. So don't reject. Don't refuse. Don't abnegate. Don't contradict Christ's payment. Finished work. It's done. Notice, second, the offering that was made by Jesus, going back to Hebrews again, chapter number 8. Look what it says in verse number 2. A minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched and not man, for every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices, wherefore it is of necessity that this man have somewhat also to offer. So notice the offering that was made by Jesus Christ. Now remember, this is sort of a, let me give you the main point. Let me just kind of expose to you what the whole is all about. And so he talks about the offering that was made by Jesus. And the question is, okay, Jesus had to have something to offer. What necessarily is that thing that he had to offer? Well, I I want you to realize something. He's not going to it in great detail right now. He is going to dig in some more as we continue into this book. But he doesn't really have to because he already has stated the offering that Jesus made. Go back to chapter number 7, verse number 27. Who needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice, first for his own sins and then for the people's. In other words, he didn't have to offer sacrifice for himself. There was no atonement that was needed for him. The priests had to do that. They had to offer sacrifice for themselves before they could offer sacrifice for you. And this was a daily thing. He didn't need to do it daily. Why? Verse 27, the end of it. For this he did once 
when he offered up himself. Not only is he our high priest, but he is the sacrifice. (laughs) You can't add to him. Jesus is all we need. Jesus himself being this, to add any sacrament or any practice or any label to it is to insult not only his work, but to insult Jesus, the sacrifice himself. Well, pastor, you have to be saved and. Uh-uh. Well, pastor, to be saved, you need to trust in Jesus Christ and. Nope, whoop, stop, stop. Any and is belittling Jesus Christ. I want you to jump over with me, if you would, to chapter number 9. We're going to get into this more when we get there. But it's important for us to see how this all connects. Look at chapter number 9. Look at verse 11 with me, if you would. But Christ, being come an high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkled the unclean sanctifieth uh, to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your from dead works to serve the living God. It's all that was necessary. The shed blood of Jesus Christ purges you of sin. That's all. Don't add to it. Don't take away from it. That's it. Okay, so preacher, you're, you're telling me then that I don't have to, I don't have to do anything. <laughs> Stop. You missed the whole first seven chapters. You don't do anything in order to be saved. Going back even to the Old Testament, the Old Testament law was never given so that you could have a relationship with God. It was given to reveal a relationship with God. They had a relationship long before the law came along. They had a relationship with God, and he instituted this idea, this practice, the the law. He instituted the Levitical system. He instituted the tabernacle. He put all this stuff together. Why? Not so that they could have a relationship, but so that they could reveal the relationship that they have with him. Then you will be my people. I will be your God. If you do these things, the world will know. Want to know? Hey, let's go ahead and Cut out the whole doctrine of election. The Old the Old Testament election. You want to know who was elected? The people of Israel. What were they elected to? Tell everybody else. New Testament, same thing. They had a relationship. And God called that specific people that had a relationship with him to introduce it to the rest of the world. 
so that the world may know. And the whole idea of the Old Testament law was to reveal, I go and I make sacrifices, not so that I can, but because I do, and I want to show what I'm putting my trust in. I'm not putting my trust in this sheep or this goat. I'm putting my trust in the one who can forgive me because of the blood. The offering that was made by Jesus is perfect. Perfect. You can't add to perfection. You can't complete completion. If it needs completed, it's not complete. That's the Greek. Think about this for a minute. Either he's complete, perfect, lacking nothing, entire, or he's not. His perfect sacrifice cannot be added to. But I want you to also note that his sacrifice was a final one. But his ministry continues today. It continues as mediator and as advocate. Look at, uh, and we'll get more into the tabernacle. I know some of you are going, let's go to the tabernacle. We will. We will. When we get into the next chapter, It's going to start to unveil a few more details. We're just kind of going over the cliff notes right now. But I want you to notice, uh, we've read uh, 2 and 3. Look at verse 4. For if he were on earth, he should not be a priest, seeing there are priests that offer gifts according to the law, who serve unto the example and shadow of heavenly things, as Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle. For see, he saith thou, uh, that thou make all things according to the pattern showed to thee in the mount. But now hath he obtained a more excellent ministry. By how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. I want you to think for just a minute, why this was even given to the people. Put yourself in the first century church. A Jew who was raised by Jewish teaching, all of their life going to the temple, all of their life participating in the sacrifices, all of their life celebrating uh, what had uh, been sacrificed, and they come along and they are looking forward and they are doing this Passover sacrifice and looking forward to the Messiah, and and, and they celebrate the week following that. They're having a big uh, celebration over what has just transpired, and they're looking forward to it, and all of a sudden you meet Christ and you understand that what you've been celebrating all these centuries prior has already taken place. He is that, that Passover lamb. He is the Messiah, and I no longer need these. And then you, you accept Christ. You trust him, and you elect to follow him as your Lord and Savior. And what happens? You abandon the old. We're going to get into the abandonment here a little bit more. But right now, think for just a moment. What if your mom and dad didn't accept Jesus as Messiah? What if your brothers and sisters did not accept Jesus as Messiah? What if your cousins did not accept Jesus as Messiah? 
And here comes the Passover celebration, and they're all going to the temple to make sacrifice. We believe that this was written prior to 70 AD and the destruction of the temple. It was still going on. The sacrifices were still being made daily. You're not invited to the party anymore. And perhaps you wonder, am I missing out on something? All those years I took part in the celebration. All those years I took part in the sacrifices. All those years. Maybe I should still be doing that. Yeah, yeah I, I, I believe Jesus is Messiah, but maybe I, maybe I should be doing both. And the writer of Hebrews says, wait a minute. You're not missing out on anything. You have more. You're not missing out on the sacrifices. Your sacrifice was perfectly made. Theirs imperfectly made. Your high priest is perfect, needs no more sacrifice. He did once, sufficient. Theirs is imperfect. You're not missing out. You have a better one. And the writer of Hebrews wants to make it abundantly clear He did it all. Now, his work as sacrifice is complete. What else? Does he just do nothing? (laughs) No. He lives to intercede for you. The mediator that you and I, my friend, need. He mediates and intercedes for you. Preacher, I'm, I believe with all my heart I'm born again by the Spirit of God, but I still mess up. Join the club. Join the club. But you know the beautiful thing is that if we sin... We have an advocate with the Father. (laughs) When I fail, I have someone seated at the right hand of God saying, I paid for that one too. He didn't just pay for the ones yesterday. He didn't just pay for the ones today. He paid for all the sins. He's able to save to the uttermost. And when I mess up, even though I try as hard as I can, but when I fail, he says, Dad, covered. He's my mediator. Lives to intercede for me. Daily. Moment by moment. tells us in chapter 7, verse 25, and he says, Wherefore he is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. In other words, at all times, making intercession. Notice something, that if he were to have just made the sacrifice and stopped I paid, I did the sacrifice, but I'm not going to work anymore. 
I can understand someone thinking that we would have to do something in order to maintain. But he didn't stop. He performed the sacrifice and then ever lives to intercede. There's nothing you can do, my friend, because he's doing it all. Going back to the idea that the law was there as a way to reveal the relationship. What does Jesus say? He says, by this shall all men know you're my disciples if you love one another. If you love me, keep my commandments. First John introduces the idea. He says, um, let's, let's paraphrase it for you. Uh, you will know you're born again by the Spirit of God if you keep His commandments. Just like the Old Testament, to reveal what they claim to have, they lived a certain way. I don't have time, and I don't have patience, and I don't have sympathy. Forgive me if that makes you uncomfortable. For someone who claims to be born again by the Spirit of God, yet says, I will live however I want to live, and you can't judge me. They have not understood what it means to follow Christ. Don't, don't, don't do that. Don't be that guy. How do I know if I'm truly born again by the Spirit of God? I keep His commandments. And they're not burdensome to me. Not grievous. Loving the things of the world, like we read earlier. If I don't love the things of the world, it doesn't bother me to give up some of the things of the world, does it? If I love Him and I realize that is not what's pleasing to him, I'm okay to say goodbye to that. But if I love that more than I love him, and I'm not willing to say no to that, you tell me. Some may be sitting there today going, don't you even try to push that. I'm not pushing nothing. I'm just reading the Bible. If you convicted, you need to talk to God, not me. I'll be happy to sit down and pray with you. So you're telling me, nope, stop, 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 stop. Do you love Jesus? That's all I want to know. Not whether you like my preaching, not whether you like the suit I wear. I'm asking you, do you love Jesus? So, Pastor, where's the meat? Right? Can you imagine the Old Testament priests following you around everywhere you went? And when you slipped up, they just, all right, let's stop, stop. Let's build a, let's build an altar. All right, let me make sacrifice real quick. Five minutes later, what? Stop, stop. <laughs> Realize the high priest we have who is with us, always making intercession, always ready. He's with you. And he promised to never leave you. To never forsake you. Here's the meat. Do you live with that reality in mind? 
do you drive during your rush hour traffic with him in the car? <laughs> Sitting in the passenger seat with you. Do you go on your dates with him, young people? A guy was asking me one time, talking about my girls. Oh, I hope you got enough shotguns. I already got it taken care of. Young man wants to take one of my daughters out. You're going to like this, Larry. Young man wants to take one of my daughters out. I'm going to put my arm around him and say, you go right ahead. You have the time of your life. Nothing is off limits. Do whatever you want to do. Stay out as late as you want. Nothing is off limits. And when you come home, you and I are doing it too. So let this face be going through your mind, whatever you're thinking about doing with my daughter. Because pucker up, buddy. I'm ready. Are you? Do you enter into your life? Do you use your cell phone, your internet, with him in mind? Your TV choices with him in mind? He's with you, ever making intercession, always, never leave you, never forsake you. Praise God, he'll never leave me nor forsake me because you know, that sin that I just committed and the one after that and the one after that, he's there making intercession for me. But guess what? There's a reality that I need to take with that. That's meat. Don't put the forks and knives away and ask for a sippy cup with some milk. Let's eat the meat. Do you take him to the couch for your TV time? Do you take him with you while you're fighting with your spouse? That's a good thing. Oh, thank God he's with me. He's right there with you in the workplace. He's right there with you every step of the way. Let that be something that encourages your heart and uplifts your soul. See, this is what it means to persevere. Eat is found in our response to the truths revealed in Christ's perfection. That's what the meat is. That's a start of it anyway. So let's make this personal for just a minute. Because the main point that he comes out with, we talked about maturity, we talked about all these different things, we talked about apostasy from chapter number 6. Understand something, there's no excuse for backward momentum of a child of God. No excuse for immaturity, none, zero, that's me. There's no excuse for apostasy, none, no excuse. There's no excuse to need more sacrifice. And there's no excuse for backsliding. There is none. Well, Pastor, you don't understand the life. No, 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 stop. He's sufficient. There's no excuse for it. So making it personal. Let me just ask to start this off because I have to be very honest. I have to be realistic that not everybody is born again by the Spirit of God. I understand that. As much as my heart's desire would be that every 
single one of you would know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I have to be realistic to the fact that there may be some here that are not born again. So let me ask you something. Have you placed your trust in the perfect work of the perfect Savior made by the perfect priest and the perfect sacrifice? Have you trusted Him? Have you applied His sacrifice to your heart and your life? Number two, are you living in the reality of His continued ministry? Are you living with that reality? Do you take Him everywhere you go, every step of your life, every decision you make? Do you live in the reality that He is with you? Or are you living a life that is void of this truth? Beloved, I say this with as much compassion as I can muster. He deserves better than me. But because He accepts me, I'm going to do everything in my power to live up and walk worthy of the calling wherewith I've been called. Let us go from this place determined to never bring reproach to His name. Determined to live with the reality He is there. Don't let that be something, oh man, I can't do this anymore. No, no, no. Let it be something that excites you. He's with you. If that bothers you, how much do you love Him? He loves you. And He's right by your side every moment of every day because He loves you. So, why does Christ's priesthood matter? Because if it weren't for our high priest, we'd be hopeless. Hopeless. But because of him, I can rest at night. When I look in the mirror and I see the failure that I am, I'm reminded of His glorious interceding. And I can rest. Because Jesus paid it all. And all to Him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but He washed it. White as snow. How about you? Father, we have shown up this morning purpose, one purpose alone. That is to present ourselves before you. Father, 
We did not come so that we could see one another. I hope. We truly did bring ourselves to you, Father, to present ourselves for your inspection. Examine us. See if there be any wicked way. Call that to our remembrance. The things that you have put on our hearts, the things that you have put on our minds today, Father, we beg you, Lord, that you would keep them there. Father, that the next time we present ourselves before you, those same things will have been dealt with in our life. Father, we know that it's difficult in our own strength and our own abilities to overcome sin. But Father, you died. And you gave to us your spirit. You rose from the dead, proving who you were, so that we could no longer face it alone, but with you. So Father, help us to be reminded of that. And no matter how difficult the task before us, help us, Father, to be reminded that you are holding our hand through it all. Thank you, Father, for that. Thank you for not leaving me alone to face the temptations and the trials, but for promising to go through them with me. Now, Father, I ask of you, Lord, that you would grant to us a liberal portion of your strength and wisdom. But, Father, as we see these things approach, that we would rejoice that you're giving us another opportunity, another good gift to be honed more into your image. Let us not be wasteful of them. We pray these things. Your son's glory for his sake. Amen.